Well, I received an encouraging letter in the mail this past week from a young man in our fellowship, Joshua Albus, and it just made my day. It was so cool. It is now going to officially be one of my Bible bookmarks, so it would just stay right in my Bible. And he said, Dear Pastor Rick, and then he says some stuff just for me, but he says at the end of this letter, I will take pride in being a Christian all of my life. And I read that, and I was so encouraged. I, I love that. Letters like that go a long way with me. Letters like that, I, I think we all need. And we need to receive them, and we need to send them. They build up, they cheer, they, they inspire, they reassure. And they're on paper, so they don't get erased digitally. We are about to open up and embark on an epic journey at this section in Jeremiah. It all begins with an encouraging letter. Jeremiah 29, you probably have heard that chapter. You're probably familiar with, oh, at least one verse out of the chapter. And we'll get there. But Jeremiah 29 begins with an encouraging letter. So long before we get to the journey, we have the letter. It was written sometime after 597 B.C., after the second wave of exiles, Nebuchadnezzar first came and took the first wave out. Kind of a warning, not messing around here. Then he came and brought the second wave. This would include Jeconiah and his mother Nehushta. Other courtiers were taken in that second wave. The third and final wave was the mass destruction of Judea, of Jerusalem, of the temple. And so this was after the second wave. We're between the two waves when this letter was written. And he begins in verse 1 of chapter 29. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. Things at this point looked bad in Judah, but far worse in Babylon. Because there in Babylon, 3,000 had already been exiled by this time, and that included Jeconiah and most of the royal family. And they, no doubt, there in Babylon, began to finally understand what the people still left in Judah didn't know, hadn't quite figured out yet. That this was not going to end well. They kept hearing from their false prophets. You know, we've been reading this. The false prophets saying, Hey, in a couple of years, this will all be over. All the vessels taken by Nebuchadnezzar from our temple, they're all going to be returned along with Jeconiah and the royal family. Everyone's coming back. God's going to do a a great work here. We trust Him for it. We believe that that's the word of the Lord. That's what the false prophets were saying. And it kept getting worse and worse and worse. And so the Lord at this time inspires Jeremiah to write a letter. And the letter is sent off, as we will see, to Babylon. An encouraging letter to the exiles. But it was also a letter of instruction on how to live in Babylon. How to plant yourself. How to prepare yourself for a long stay. And in this letter, of course, we have that marvelous encouragement. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29.11. We Christians love Jeremiah 29.11. We quote it all the time. We own it, though it belongs to Israel. 
Now, we're grafted in. So please, continue to use Jeremiah 29 and 11 in your life. But I hope by the end of tonight, if not by Sunday, the context of it will grow larger for you than simply a life verse. Because it's much bigger than that. We love to grab hold of that promise. But we actually have kind of a promise of our own, very similar to that given to Israel. A promise we read in the New Testament Scriptures. The equivalent would be Philippians 1 verse 6. I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Talk about a future and a hope. Jesus is at work and He is in your heart perfecting and changing and sanctifying. And that's going on all through our lives. It is so encouraging to be reminded every now and then, Jesus is still working. He is still perfecting. He's still making me better. Now, there are probably two letters going on in chapter 29. There may be as many as three letters. And I'm going to break it down as though we're looking at three letters, but at least two, and you'll see why in just a minute. But we start with letter number one, beginning in verse three. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and of Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons. And give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there, and do not decrease. Some things about this letter to note, this first letter, number one, the letter assumes a long but fruitful exile. It's obvious from the opening words of the letter, build houses there. Well, you're not going to build a house if you're going to be there a couple of years. You might pitch a tent or rent a room. But you're not going to build a house. Build houses. Settle in, he says. You're going to be there a while. And while you're there, you're going to be fruitful. Verses 4 through 6 sound at least like a generation, if not two, perhaps three generations. This is going to be an exile, as you know, of 70 years. Jeremiah 25, verse 11, told us that. Verse 10 of this letter, we'll say that a second time, 70 years you're going to be in Babylon in exile. But throughout this long exile, God has a very specific word for His people. Multiply there and do not decrease. Which falls right in line with God's plan for Israel from the very beginning when He called Abraham. He said, Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. That's always been God's plan for Israel, to increase. It was God's plan when the people were in Egypt. They went into Egypt 70. They came out perhaps as many as 3 million because they increased, even under bondage. And now he says, you're going into captivity. I want you to increase. And that is the seed of Abraham. You don't plant a seed without expecting increase. And when the plant grows, of course, more seeds then are planted, which grows more plants. And that's the whole idea here. Why is it important? Because from Israel, Romans 9.5 tells us, the Christ according to the flesh would come, who is overall God blessed forever. 
The Christ is coming through the line of Israel, through the seed. you got to keep increasing. Keep it growing. Because through this genus, through this people, I'm going to come into this world. The coming of Christ continued in the conception and cultivation of captivity. And in fact, Jesus Himself was born in a time of oppression, wasn't He? Oppression's never a problem for God. We talked about this on Sunday. If you live in days of oppression, so be it. Be fruitful. Multiply. Increase. And if we as Christians, even in America, find ourselves under oppression, be fruitful. Multiply. Increase. Let's continue to pursue this world and see people born again by the living seed of the Holy Spirit of Christ. We want to be a fruitful people. Jesus was born, again, in a time of great oppression. Paul says in Galatians 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The law, perfect though it was, was oppressive because it was impossible. Only a perfect person could keep the law. Only Jesus did. But He was born under the law, Paul says, so that He might redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Multiply. Increase. Grow. Well, we come to verse 7. The letter continues. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. And you Bible students know the word welfare there is shalom. Pray for the peace of Babylon. I got no problem praying for the peace of Jerusalem. But pray for the peace of Babylon? God says, yeah, because as they have peace, so you too will have peace. And so this letter not only assumes a long, fruitful exile, it assumes a life of faithful submission. Even in Babylon, in the history of the Jewish people, this letter has remained a standard for them. Think about how the Jews have functioned in their dispersion throughout the nations of the world. They have settled themselves. They have taken on the identity of that nation while not losing the identity of their Jewishness. Prior to the Nazi Holocaust, Jews were fierce Germans. They believed in Germany. Those Jews who were nationals, who lived in Germany, who were born and raised in Germany, they were Germans. And they were Jews. American Jews are Americans. And they're Jews. And that's always the way it's been with the Jewish people. They identify with the country of their residence and they keep an eye to their own country. Identify and keep an eye. That's a great pattern for us to live by. See, after listing the faithful names of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, the Hebrew writer goes on to say this. Hebrews 11.13 All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. Each of these lived in a country, lived in a region, lived in an area, and they sought peace there, but they were looking for their own country. They knew it would come. Hebrews 11.16 says, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. And again, we talked about this Sunday. We are not just to stand for Jesus in an oppositional world, but to stand in Jesus for an oppositional world. 
Which means no matter what happens in America, we continue to pray for the peace of America. We don't become anti-American. No, we are Americans as nationals, you know, Americans by nationality, but at the same time we're citizens of a better country, a heavenly country, citizens of the coming kingdom. Identify, but keep an eye. Verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. He dispels the myth of a short stay. When 70 years are done, then I'm going to bring you back. Don't listen to the false prophets, the false teachers. This tells us something that's a little surprising. The letter assumes, number three, not only a long, fruitful exile, a life of faithful submission, but number three, the letter assumes a lingering false teaching. Even in Babylon, even in exile, false prophecy continues. Maybe that's not a surprise to you, but it was to me, thinking about, they're already in captivity and there were prophets there who were false, who were deceiving the people in captivity, who were lying to the people. And again, they were teaching and preaching a quick return to the land, an abbreviated captivity. It won't be long now, they said. Why not just let the people dream? You know... Well, why do you have to keep pointing out we're going to be here 70 years, Jeremiah? Why don't let the prophets say it's going to be two or three? What harm does it do? I'll tell you what harm it does. When false teachers say it's going to happen this way or that way, and it doesn't, the people are disappointed. And God is not a God of disappointment. He rejects disappointment. False teaching always disappoints because false teaching only goes so far until it's proven false. And then all those who follow after the false teaching are disappointed. Oh, He's not the Messiah we thought He was. Oh, the world didn't end when He said it would. Oh, the church wasn't raptured. Perhaps there's no rapture at all. And people become disillusioned and disappointed. Tell me the exile is only a few short years. That's fine. What happens when we round the first decade? We're still here. Or the second decade. What are we telling our children in the third decade? As the prophets, the false prophets spew on. But if you know you're in it for the long haul, God says it's going to be 70 years. All right. Then I'm not worried if I'm still here 45 years from now. Because God said this is the way it is. He doesn't want His people to be disappointed. Now, in thinking about this, someone might say, what about you pre-tribbers? Of which I are one. What about you who say, the rapture is going to happen any time? You know, Rick, I've heard you talk about the imminent return of Jesus. Don't you expect a quick release? Yes, I do. But listen. Though I believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, that it could even be tonight, guess what? I won't be disappointed if I wake up tomorrow morning and it wasn't tonight. You know why? Because Jesus said, be on the alert. You don't know the day or the hour. He doesn't give us a time. 
so that we won't be disappointed when it doesn't happen when we think it will. And remember, he says, it will happen in a time when you do not think it will. So I wake up every morning and say, this will not be the day. (laughs) Harold Camping. Remember Harold Camping? Guy who said, May of, May of 2011, it's going to happen. And May came and went, and it didn't happen. He said, Oh, no, no, my calculations were off by five months. It's October of 2011. And October of 2011 came and went, and the church was not raptured. Ron Wineland, another false prophet, said, May 27th of 2012, that's the day. Well, Welcome to 2013. It didn't happen. So do we just reject the idea of the rapture? No. But we don't set a date by which we will be disappointed. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul said, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With a mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, listen, the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Belief in Jesus never leads to disappointment. Only to encouragement. Not disappointment. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Paul quotes from that. He he did it in chapter 9 of the book of Romans. Does it in chapter 10. Peter will do it as well. And Paul says in Romans 5.5, Hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Which raises another issue. Hope doesn't disappoint, because we have the Spirit of Christ. right? And we know He's coming, and we know that coming is imminent. Whether it's tonight or not, that's His call. But I'm not disappointed because I have the Holy Spirit encouraging, comforting me, and letting me know, yeah, He's coming. Okay, false teaching not only disappoints, false teaching denies the authentic power of the Holy Spirit. And what's ironic about that is a lot of false teaching tends to come in charismatic circles. And I don't mean any offense by that because I absolutely believe in the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the spiritual gifts that they are for today as they were 2,000 years ago. I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We can have that conversation, talk more about it. But all these things I believe biblically and accurately by the Scriptures. And yet, in some circles, it seems that the Holy Spirit is actually denied though some circles would want to elevate the Holy Spirit. Because false teaching denies the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it it pings off of the mind of man rather than the, the mind of Christ. If it's false teaching, it is not of the mind of the Spirit of Christ. It's of the mind of man. And stuff that comes out of the mind of man lacks the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit teaches, He teaches in truth, and that truth has power with it. 2 Timothy 3.5 We know the false teachers hold to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. And they don't even sometimes realize they are denying its power. Oh, the Lord told me this, the Spirit said this, and it doesn't happen, and that is powerless preaching. Now it may be emotional, it may be exciting, it may give people a charge for a week or two or three, and then it goes away. Remember the Lakeland? Is it Lakeland? I think it was Lakeland Revival in Florida. Who remembers that? 
This was a year, two years, three years ago? What's going on right now? Is it just over? This was supposed to continue based on the prophets at that revival. It was supposed to continue all the way up until Jesus came. Has it? You hear nothing about it now. We have to be careful, and I want to talk more about this in just a minute. I know I've talked a lot about false teachers and false prophets. Well, Jeremiah does, so that's the book we're in. We're going to deal with these things. But understand that not only does false teaching disappoint, it denies the authentic power of the Holy Spirit. If I sit up here and I utter false words, I quench the work of the Spirit. It is only by speaking the truth that the Spirit then works in His power. He alone seals a heart for salvation. The Holy Spirit is by nature the Spirit of truth. John 16.13 When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Which means if someone prophesies something by the Holy Spirit and it's not true, guess what? It's not of the Holy Spirit. He only speaks truth. So by the power of the Spirit of God, you will only receive truth. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. See, that's what some areas of the church, some corners of the church do. They say, we've seen too many weird things come out of charismatic movements. Therefore, we're just going to deny the work of the Holy Spirit. It stopped with Paul and the apostles. We're just going to say that was it. Because we don't want to end up in that word area. Paul says, don't do that. (laughs) Don't deny the work of the Spirit. He says, but examine everything carefully. You know, do the hard work of a believer. Open up your scripture and test. Is this legitimate? Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21. But twist the word of God. And what do you think the Holy Spirit does? Just go along with it? Just let it go. Oh, I know that was a little weird. We'll just we'll just ignore that one. We'll kind of wink at it. No. If it's not true, it is not of the Spirit of God. And we're going to see what the Lord does in three examples before the chapter ends. The fourth thing this letter does is it advances a loving foresight. Best part of the letter, we get to verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I believe, by the way, that's not just for Israel. That's anybody. If you are truly seeking and searching after the Lord God, you'll find Him. He's looking for those who are looking for Him. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Man, I really want to talk about that right now. But I'm going to save those few verses for Sunday morning. And we're going to look at them a little closer then. But here's the bottom line. Even in captivity, while the false teachers are going off, God still has a plan in play for His people. He hasn't forgotten them. He's still working out His perfect plan. Letter number two, perhaps. I don't know for sure, but... Some say this is where we get into the second letter. And it's because it's so much more severe. Verse 15. 
Because you have said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. For thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your brothers who did not go with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending upon them the sword, famine, pestilence, and I will not, and I will make them like split open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. How's that for a word picture? <laughs> I will pursue them with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, and I will make them a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse and a horror and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them because they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord which I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets. Now he's talking to the people who are back home. Okay, This letter's going off to Babylon. But he's referring to those who remain in Israel, remain in Judea, and how they're rebelling against the Lord because they weren't willing to just go on into captivity. They're fighting against it. They're hiding out. They're fleeing to other countries. And God says, that is not my plan for you. But then he says... Look at the last of verse 19. But you did not listen, declares the Lord. Wow. (laughs) We suddenly took a pretty serious turn there. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for hope and a future. And I'm going to send famine and pestilence and the sword for these people over... I mean, it's, it's so different that some Bible scholars have said this this can't be the same letter. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, leaves these four verses out completely. doesn't even put them in because they read it and go, <laughs> we, can't, we can't follow up the Jeremiah 29.11 with a passage like that. that will freak people out, so we can't do it. Not only will there be no quick return, but God says absolutely unequivocally, there will be nothing to return to. You're in Babylon, consider yourself safe and protected, because back here, it's going to be a complete and utter wipeout, sword famine, pestilence, split open figs that are rotten. That's the picture. But again, notice verse 19 begins with, they have not listened to my words. And it ends with, you did not listen. The false prophets just offered, offered false hope. They were offering false hope back in the land. They were offering false hope there in Babylon. Did the Lord raise up any legitimate prophets in Babylon? Can you name a couple? Daniel. Who else? Ezekiel. Daniel and Ezekiel both. Ezekiel, considered one of the major prophets because he has a major book. Daniel considered one of the minor prophets, although his prophecy is one of the most major in the entire Bible. Both these guys would prophesy from Babylon, and we'll hear from them after we finish up Jeremiah's writings. But their prophecies, Ezekiel and Daniel, are wholly consistent with the prophecies of Jeremiah. You could almost put them all in the same book. They are all in the same book. Are you with me here? They're all in. We go Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Okay, they're all here together because it's consistent. It's the phony balonies who are preaching that short-term stay. We'll watch this, verse 20. You therefore hear the, the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Koliah, and concerning Zedekiah, the son of Maasiah, 
who are prophesying to you falsely in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will slay them before your eyes. Because of them, a curse will be used by all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon. This is what the people would say. This becomes kind of a saying. May the Lord make you like Zedekiah and like Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. That becomes a curse for these people. Because they have acted foolishly in Israel and have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and have spoken words in my name falsely, which I did not command them. And I am he who knows and am a witness, declares the Lord. You're not getting anything by me. These guys weren't only false prophets, they were adulterers. And doing the same, all at the same time. And God says, I've seen it. And I am calling them out, and they are going to be slain before you. And they will become a curse before you. We don't know anything else about this Ahab and this Zedekiah. It's the only time these two guys are mentioned in all of Scripture. They have familiar names, but they're not the same Ahab and Zedekiah that we've talked about before. These two men, all we know is they're preaching rebellion. And that rebellion, oh, this is interesting. You know what? It shows up in their own marriage. Huh. You can't be deceiving at work and not have it affect the home. You can't be lying to your wife and living in the truth in somewhere else. You know what? Your life is your life. And what you do in one place will be seen in another. It will come up in another, just like it did with these guys. They're lying in both the home and among the people. And they're preaching a rebellion. Remember God's plans. God's plans for His people were plans for welfare and not for calamity to give them a future and a hope. And God is always working out His best For you, in your life, He wants His best for you. It's my best that gets in the way. These guys would stand up and they'd say, we're going back to the land, it's going to be good. And they're deceiving because my best only comes from temporary understanding. You know, the best that I can come up with, close your Bibles and let's see what we can come up with on our own. The best that we can come up with ain't that good. But God's best is perfect. That's why Paul just blurts out, loves this. Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He says this at the end of Romans 9.10 and 11, where he has proclaimed the entire plan that God has for Israel and the church. And when he's done proclaiming it, it's like his pen can't handle itself. It just says, praise the Lord. This is marvelous. He says, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become His counselor? Who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. The Ahabs and the Zedekiahs of the world are just idiots compared to the wonder of the mind of God. And don't forget, brothers and sisters, we have... The mind of Christ. God would pour into your mind, into your heart, His word of truth. His best. And if we live by His best, we live the best. Letter number three. Now I don't know if that truly was a second letter. It's entirely likely that that was all one letter, even though the second half of the letter is so serious. It's a serious warning, and yet the first half is a great promise. So perhaps that was one, maybe two, but now we get to what was definitely or is definitely a separate letter. 
from the rest of the chapter. Verse 24. To Shimeiah the Nehelamite, you shall speak, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have sent letters in your own name to all the people who are in Jerusalem, and to Zephaniah the son of Maasiah the priest, and to all the priests, saying, The Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada the priest, to be overseer in the house of the Lord over every madman who prophesies to put him in the stocks and in the iron collar. Now then, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anatote who prophesies to you? For he has sent to us in Babylon saying, The exile will be long and build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. You see what's going on there? God sends a letter, another letter, to Babylon because of a letter that had come from Babylon back to Jerusalem. It had come from this false prophet, this Shimeiah. Shimeiah, obviously, because of what he says, is responding, sent a letter responding to the first letter of Jeremiah. Okay, because in the first letter of Jeremiah, verse 5, he said, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, right? That letter came to Babylon. Shimeiah, the false prophet, read that letter, heard that letter, and quotes from it, and he sends a letter back to Jerusalem. But the letter he sends is to a priest, a priest named Zephaniah. And he tells this priest, Zephaniah, you ought to be the high priest. In fact, thus says the Lord, you're supposed to be. You need to depose Jehoiada, who was the current high priest. Get him out of the way. You're supposed to be the high priest. And by the way, once you're the high priest, you can deal with this Jeremiah jerk. You can put him in the stocks like he should be, because thus says the Lord, every madman who prophesies should be blah, blah, blah. So you get the picture of what's going on here. He sends a letter back to divide, to subvert, to try and stir things up in Jerusalem. Well, what he didn't count on was verse 29. Zephaniah the priest read this letter to Jeremiah the prophet. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, be careful what you email. Because it may come back to bite you. Be, Be careful who you align yourself with, especially when your alignment is divisive. God hates division absolutely hates a divisive spirit. And you will be found out. I don't believe any of you are a divisive spirit. I'm really preaching for those who are listening to the tape at home because there may be some out there. (laughs) God hates a divisive spirit. And a divisive spirit is always found out. And so this divisive spirit, this Shimeiah, he gets found out. He sends it to Zephaniah the priest and to the people to try and undermine the prophecies of Jeremiah. Zephaniah, thank the Lord he does the right thing. He goes to Jeremiah. Well, verse 30 tells us, Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, Send to all the exiles. Saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shimeiah the Nehelamite, Because Shimeiah has prophesied to you, although I did not send him, and he has made you trust in a lie, therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to punish Shimeiah the Nehelamite and his descendants, He will not have anyone living among His people, and He will not see the good that I am about to do to My people, declares the Lord, because He has preached rebellion against the Lord. Just because someone preaches something that's nice to hear doesn't mean that it's not rebellion. Just because it sounds good, 
it can still very well be rebellion against God's plan. Rebellion isn't just standing with, you know, fists, waving them in the air, shouting threats. The worst, listen, the worst rebellion is quiet subversion of the Word of God. Those who would undermine Scripture, those who would plant the seed of doubt with God's Word, is the worst kind of rebellion. It's been going on since the Word was given. Why don't you turn your Bibles over, keep a finger there, turn over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Ahab, Zedekiah, Shimeiah, all false prophets. All guys that would be called out. All guys that would be shut down by the Lord. False prophecy has been going on across the ages. Paul dealt with it. We deal with it today. And that's why we've got to deal with it right now. And think about this just for a moment with me. Paul is writing in the second letter to the church at Corinth. And... He's writing in part, throughout this letter, he keeps referring to these guys who thought of themselves as ultra or super apostles. Men who had set themselves up there at the church of Corinth as super apostles. This stuff was going on and Paul's writing to the church of Corinth and he's dealing with these super apostles. Listen to a few things he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. And this is a contrast to the so-called super apostles. He says... We are not like many, peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. First thing that just undermines false teaching is the open teaching of the Word of God. Paul says that's what we've been doing. We've been just giving you God's Word. We've been giving it to you openly and honestly. We have let God's Word be God's Word. We are not trying to peddle some new idea we're just giving you the truth here. Skip over to chapter 4, verse 2. He says, We have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Be careful, because false teachers always like to bring up secret things. You know, In the book of Revelation, it's the Greek word bathos, the deep things, the hidden things. Well, he says... We've renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness, not adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What's the manifestation of truth? It's truth that's obvious. Truth that is seen. Truth that is made known. We speak the truth and you watch it happen. That's the deal. How do you know our Word is true? Because it plays out truthfully. And he says, that's what we've been doing commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Skip over to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 13. You comfortable tonight? How are these chairs working out for you? Good, good. Because I am just getting started. He talks again about these super apostles. He says, For such men are false apostles deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Understand, that verse had a direct correlation when Paul said it. It wasn't just some vague nebulous, oh, the devil disguises himself. He was talking about the false prophets who were disguised, truly working for the enemy. No wonder, 
For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. They're going to get their comeuppance, Paul says. Skip over to chapter 13. End of the book, chapter 13, verse 5, and you can go home and say, man, we studied all of 2 Corinthians tonight. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul says this. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. We ourselves, we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. But in a world of relativity, that kind of thinking is sometimes hard to grasp. In a culture where truth is whatever you make it, we need to be reminded there is an absolute truth. The Word of God is absolutely true. Jesus is absolutely the true God and everlasting life. So we have these truths by which we can walk that that guide us along the path, bright shining beacons of truth. And as we go through the Word of God and we study it here together, You understand the truth. Jesus said the truth will set you free. We can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. We've talked again a lot about false teaching lately. I've even called out some false teaching that I believe is going on over in Anacortes. I just heard word a couple of days ago there's some people really mad at me because I called that out. I'm like, who even knows I'm here? But apparently there's some people in Anacortes who are upset that I would name... These Christian terraformers, oop, did it again. <laughs> that I would give my opinion, and you might you might be one of those who says this, and I'm just going to throw the question out, why does Pastor Rick have to open his big mouth so wide? Why does he have to do this so much? Why does Rick give his opinion at all? Can't we just do our thing at the bridge, be happy in our new chairs, <laughs> And just keep quiet and let, let live and let live. Why can't we do that? And I've thought about this a lot lately. And I'll tell you why I can't do that. Because warnings against spiritual dangers and potential heresies are never fun to give, but they are necessary for the body of Christ. We've got to be warned against heresy. We've got to be warned against possible spiritual fallacy. And you know what? Even if I'm wrong, I would rather give the warning and have people think about it and test it and be sure that it's true. And then if we test things and we say, yeah, man, that lines up with Scripture. Rick, you're wrong. Fine, then I'm wrong. It's not about me being right. Like Paul said, it's not about me being approved. It's just about standing by the truth and preaching the truth. And the Bible clearly teaches that false teaching will only increase in the last days. So tell me, what is a pastor to do? 
what is a teaching pastor to teach? If I know that false teaching is on the rise, is on the increase as we approach these final days, as we are in the last days, I think the last of the last days, we've got to warn. Every time something new comes up, every time there's some kind of danger, and again, I've said this before, it's not to be paranoid, it's to be prepared. It's to have eyes wide open. John the Apostle, the Apostle of Love, said the following in 2 John verse 9, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Wow. That's serious business, gang. Someone comes knocking at your door with heresy, and John would say, don't even greet him. Stand with the truth. Well, good news. In the next chapter, we leave the false prophets spinning in the wake of a truly promising future for Israel.